Well, it's a little bit pedantic, reading journals like The Lancet, up to date, and those medical reviews. But here we're more about the antics than being caught up in semantics, so listen here for your pediatric news. Welcome to Pedantic. I'm Sumit. Uh, we have a really special episode today. I'll be talking with two returning champions, Divya and Shoshana, uh, about a recently released article uh, comparing acetaminophen, ibuprofen for treatment of fever and pain in children under two years old. They used a systematic review and meta-analysis to look at this. But we also have some fun things built in. Coming up next, actually, I took it to the streets uh, and, and spoke with some familiar, uh, some familiar voices out there about how you decide between acetaminophen and ibuprofen for treating pain and fever in children. We also have a game coming up, so stick around. We'll be right back. All right, so we're talking today about an article that. Uh, was out in the JAMA Network open um, just about a month ago. The title is Comparison of Acetaminophen with Ibuprofen for Treatment of Fever or Pain in Children Younger Than Two Years, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And so as, we're, as I was thinking about sort of the background for this, there's been a lot of debate um, over the years about Tylenol versus Motrin. I should say, she's uh, maybe generic names only today, Acetaminophen versus Ibuprofen. Um, and I thought I'd get some input from some familiar voices you may know about what they think and how, what, what, how you know, what they would choose between ibuprofen and acetaminophen. So here we go. Tylenol or Motrin? I'm going to go ahead and say Motrin is my preference because of its anti, so both Tylenol and Motrin having antipyretic effects, both having um, effects in terms of pain, but the anti-inflammatory effect of uh, of ibuprofen and its efficacy in you know various musculoskeletal conditions, some inflammatory conditions. And generally, I think just my bias and what's worked for me in the past has been ibuprofen. So if I'm able to do ibuprofen, I typically do ibuprofen. But I think for many things, they're probably equally efficacious. But I think ibuprofen has a, has a little extra. I always use Tylenol because I find that parents are worried about using Motrin even after they get the instruction that a specific age children can take it. So just to kind of alleviate those concerns, I feel like Tylenol, no stress. Give Tylenol, they know the dosage, they can get anywhere. Motrin, also known as ibuprofen. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I prefer ibuprofen if the kid has no renal problems or other issues because to me it seems like it's more helpful for like inflammation and pain, also for fever. Um, it's something that in my like personal health practice, if I were given a choice, I would take it myself. Um, so for me, that's that's my preference. It depends. It always depends. But Motrin, for the most part, under six months of age, no Motrin, and a lot of other factors going. Oh, my gut says Motrin, but because I think it takes down fevers faster and better, more, more often, but uh, Tylenol is gentle around the gut, and you can give it more frequently, every four hours instead of every six. So, tricky. 
<laughs> what do you think, Lily? <laughs> I feel Motrin works best. Um, I do believe that it, it it treats the pain patients feel versus Tylenol, and it does take fever down faster than Tylenol. Yeah, it helps a little bit more with like the inflammation, so that does help a little bit more with the, the pain a little bit better as well. Yeah. I agree. So Motrin. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Tylenol or Motrin? Yes. Both? I still don't really know. Maybe Tylenol, because you can give it to pregnant people. Or Motrin, so you can spare your liver, which is really important to pandemic coping. Or Tylenol, so you avoid gastritis. Or Tylenol, so you save your kidneys. Or Motrin, because it cures all of your itis, no matter what's causing your pain or your fever. Thoughts, initial thoughts. Jimmy wanted to say beyond those were amazing. <laughs> you know, I think the, the last comment really sums it up. I think that there are a lot of pros and cons to both, both drugs. And I think, um, you know, we often have to take into consideration different medical comorbidities and other factors when we're deciding what with drugs to use in our patients. Um, I don't have a, I, my preference is, is Tylenol, but we can, we can save that for like the rest of the article. <laughs> so I'm- Shoshana, coming in like, you know, before I, the article, like based on I'm your- I'm team ibuprofen all the way. Um, so Divya and I can debate. And I, I definitely see both sides of it, but I think that at least in the outpatient setting, the benefits of ibuprofen are, over Tylenol, except in the under six month olds, which is actually really interesting. And this article made some really interesting points about it are really clear and there are a lot of them. So to me, it's always ibuprofen unless there's a reason not to. Before reading this article and thinking about the background, in many ways I saw them as equivalent. I think that you know, the nurses that we spoke with um, can kind of mention some of those pros and cons of the two, you know, and a little more of a balanced approach compared to other people who had their sort of a priori, like I always use this, so I'd rather do this. Um, and it's not, not necessarily always so clear cut, um, particularly because of the various reasons that we don't give one or we do give the other and that kind of thing. So definitely some nuances, which I think helped to sort of frame this article and the context in which I know I was approaching it as I tried to read it. So um, this was, as I mentioned before, a systematic review and meta-analysis from some uh, authors out of Australia. And again, their objective was to compare acetaminophen and ibuprofen for the short-term treatment of fever or pain in children younger than two years of age. Uh, and one of their secondary outcomes or secondary uh, aims was to also look at the safety profiles. Um, so they did a pretty good, you know, exhaustive data search. They looked through all the usual, the usual players, Medline and Base, uh, the Cochrane Register. They looked at some Australian-specific clinical trials. But this register was a nice, a nice uh, down-under touch. They, they did mention some previous studies that have shown uh, varying degrees of uh, differences, and some that have shown more similarities. But they wanted really pull all the data together to get a, a, a better overview. They used the the Prisma guidelines. Um, which is really uh, you know, gold standard when you're doing a systematic review and analysis. 
And so I have very little to say really about the methodology. It was pretty sound in my opinion. And, uh, you know, they all, they, they did the best they could with the, with the evidence that was out there. Um, you know, they lay out in figure one as expected, their flow chart of the studies that they identified and the ones that they excluded and the ones that they ended up including in the end. So they started off with the total of 5,000 records, uh, really went and whittled it down to 20 publications, which represented 12 RCTs, seven non-RCTs, and then one non-RCT that was actually just, they just looked at it qualitatively. So again, these are all pretty heterogeneous studies, uh, which we tend to see in these kinds of reviews. Um, they had different dosages of the medications used, different outcomes, uh, but they were able to, to pull together um, the, uh, the different studies to really achieve an overall number from the RCTs of 28,000, which is a good solid, um, a good solid. And, and then from the non-RCTs, the non-randomized studies, they had 212,000 participants. And they, I will say before we get into the outcomes that the non-randomized studies were mostly around safety outcomes, which makes sense. You know, we're gonna look back retrospectively just look and see um, which patients developed um, some of the adverse effects of the medications. So down to the primary outcomes, which again were fever and pain, and they really want to look at the short-term outcomes, so under 24 hours. I will say before getting into it, none of the studies included pain outcomes in under four hours, which was a limitation of the study. And I think they commented on it as well themselves. And as I was reading through, I was like, this is really what we want to, want to know. We'll come back to that a little bit later. But with regards to fever, they looked at fever within four hours and fever from four to 24 hours. And they found that ibuprofen was, was better at reducing fever in both those time timeframes. So within four hours and within four to 24 hours. Um, they looked at it two different ways. They looked at it in terms of the absolute reduction in the temperature. And they also looked at um, uh, a sort of a dichotomized analysis or categorical analysis, looking at where they likely to be afebrile under four hours or afebrile under 24 hours. And they found that again, both favored ibuprofen. Um, so when you look at sort of the categorical analysis, there was a roughly you know, kids who got ibuprofen were roughly two times more likely to be febrile under four hours and four 24 hours. And uh, I think both of you know that I love four spots. There are a lot of four spots here. And I'll, I'll just, I would just mention to all the listeners out there, if you want to follow along with the four spots, you can see that these are sort of like nice, fairly nice conference intervals um, and nice statistics for, for that particular thing. When we look at analgesic properties. Again, we didn't have any data for under four hours, but for 24 hours, the subjects were about, about three times greater odds of being pain-free uh, at four 24 hours if you got ibuprofen compared to acetaminophen. So those are, those, those are the, those are the main outcomes. So ibuprofen was better than acetaminophen for fever throughout the 24-hour period, and pain was better in the people that got ibuprofen compared to those that got acetaminophen. And then looking at the safety outcomes, overall low rates of adverse events across all studies. And so perhaps they weren't, perhaps none really powered to look at safety outcomes in the two, but they really found no difference in the short-term outcomes within 28 days of some of the common side effects 
including things like GI bleeds and kidney impairments and, uh, and, and asthma, wheeze, those kinds of things. They didn't really look at the long-term outcomes, which I think there were, there were fewer studies looked at that. So um, really most looked at the immediate outcomes. So I wanted to pause there and, and get your hot takes on, on that information. Maybe we'll start with, we'll go fever and we'll go pain and then we'll go safety outcomes, talk about each of those individually. Like I wanted to hear your thoughts on the fever outcome first. So I think anecdotally, most people in the outpatient setting definitely feel like Motrin is a better fever reducer. Um, and then there are a lot of studies included in this one to sort of back it up. One of the things I initially thought when I was reading this was that it was a little unfair that they looked at fever at the four hour mark since Tylenol only works for four hours. Um, and it felt like it was just like an unfair metric that if we looked at fever at the six hour mark, would it be Motrin that was doing worse? Um, Cause we know that the Tylenol sort of meant to wear off. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when looking at it from the four to 24, it continued. Um, the fact that there was no improvement sort of beyond that the one day mark, I think can like be attributed to a lot of things, including like, how are people dosing it? What happens to like the natural history of fevers beyond the one day mark we see in children, like in the outpatient setting all the time that kids have a fever for a day and it goes away. Um, or parents become a little bit less vigilant with the dosing of their medication. So that um, didn't really surprise me so much. Um, and neither did these outcomes. Um, and from a dosing standpoint for fever, you know, there's obviously a a ton of fever phobia within um, patient communities. Parents are scared of just the act, like the idea of fever, as opposed to, you know, what's causing the fever. And so the fact that it can keep kids fever free for longer um, is really attractive to me because I think it like helps decrease the worry. When I was looking at the, um, the outcomes of the study, I had very similar thoughts to Shoshana. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned this to me earlier, but I think the idea of like reduced temperature may be significant to, to parents. And I think, you know, in agreeing with Shoshana, I said like, there's a lot of fever phobia out there. We have patients all the time or parents all the time who tell us like, my child is febrile and that seems really worrisome to them, but we really want to reduce fever for the discomfort that fever causes. I don't know if you guys have had a fever recently, I, but from what I can remember, it's like one of the worst feelings in the entire world. Um, and so I think the studies are definitely limited by not measuring discomfort as the authors mentioned or any kind of pain or other symptoms that may be associated with the fever. Um, so that was my issue with the outcomes itself. But I think given the studies, you know, this is what we're working with. Um, and the other thing I thought was interesting was that the first outcome was temperature at less than four hours. And like Shana mentioned, temperature, Tylenol or acetaminophen rather um, wears off after four hours. So I didn't feel like that was like the most fair outcome to be looking at. Um, but other than that, the results didn't really um, surprise me much. I mean, the antipyretic effect didn't continue beyond 24 hours in both medications. And I, I didn't really find that um, surprising necessarily. You know, we're not really, these are just symptomatic treatments. They're not really treating the underlying cause of, of what's causing fever. Right. As you mentioned, it's more the sort of symptomatic relief for children under two who have fever because, as you mentioned, Divya, I can imagine that a two-year-old is going to be off the walls with a fever. And, you know, the, they, they report the SMD, the standard mean difference, sort of like the, the numeric decrease in the temperature, and that was 0.4. It wasn't that much, um, but that might be enough to bring the fever 
I guess down enough that they're no longer no longer febrile. Um, yeah, I wonder if a better a better outcome then would be looking at fever at two hours or thirty minutes because you really want that immediate effect, right? And perhaps that's why there was a, a, a sort of a focus on under twenty four hours compared to um, sort of the longer the one to three days, as you mentioned, Shoshana, like the fever the curve, the, the curve tends to kind of go down after after a day or two anyway, and so that might be less of um, what you're after with these medications. I think also in clinical practice, to me, like you mentioned that like shorter interval may be more useful because we have parents all the time and probably ourselves too. If we're not seeing that immediate relief. We'll take the other drug that we didn't take already. And parents do that all the time. So I think looking at a shorter, shorter time interval would have been more helpful. Yeah. There definitely are studies out there that um, weren't included in this analysis that talk about which one gets your fever down faster and it's Motrin. Mm. And yeah, yeah, to me, you know, the person who they're calling in the middle of the night about the fever, I want to make sure that in 30 minutes that fever is down so that the parents aren't still up worrying. Pain. Let's talk about pain next. And to me, the big thing is there was no studies under four hours. And so, you know, having being pain free in 16 hours is great, but that may not really be a realistic outcome from a patient family standpoint. Do you guys agree? Yeah, I agree. It's not like a very helpful clinical outcome to be to be looking at. And I think it's great that you're feeling better after a longer period of time. But you know, similar to fever, I think families and patients are looking for that like more immediate relief. And so um, I think that was definitely um, not as helpful to look at. Yeah, uh, obviously pain and discomfort are important. And I think that also the distinction of pain from the fever versus are we treating this, are we using the Motrin or Tylenol as a treatment for that, for analgesia? Um, and I think those two things are also need to be maybe like spaced, like spread out a little bit. Did they talk about how they measure pain? Sumit? I'm sure the studies that all did a little bit differently, but um, they had pain scales oh, okay. um, because they also, again, had that continuous variable for pain figure 4A, pain score or change in pain score. And it often was like, you know, difference of 0.2. All right, there it is. So, I mean, it was significant statistically, but they had a large sample size. So you'd argue like, what's the clinical significance of a difference of 0.2 yeah. on a pain scale, which is presumably in like solid number, whole number integers. So yeah, pain went down, but I think probably the more meaningful outcome is improved pain score under four hours, yes or no. And that was sort of like three times greater odds. But again, going from a five to a four compared to going from like a five to a two, my mind is a little different. So improved pain score may not necessarily tell the whole, the full picture of, of how much the pain score actually improved. So pain's a tough one. And I think yeah. in this context, with the outcomes that they have, with the measures that they have. Like Shoshana said about the fever one, I think we should look at, they're probably in their probably out there, which one brings the pain down quicker and to a greater degree versus is it improved or not improved? I think this study shows that the pain's improved after, you know, after ibuprofen compared to acetaminophen. And then lastly, they talked about safety. That came up in a lot of sort of like the on the streets uh, questions that Kant's people mentioned about why they choose one versus the other. We should only hear a lot about, you know, impact with acetaminophen, with 
with overdoses. We hear about the GI bleeds and the kidney impairment with ibuprofen. But again, when we looked at all these studies together, they're, off, they're pretty low, pretty low incidence of, of, these, of these safety and safety events. Yeah, I have to admit, I haven't looked at this literature in a, in a while, and I my, my preconceived notion was also that Motrin has more side effects than acetaminophen. And, you know, I, I, I will say just in my clinical practice, I am more hesitant to use it in our patient population, which admittedly is a little bit different than the outpatient setting. On the inpatient setting, I think sometimes you have to take into consideration patients' various comorbidities more frequently. Um, and so acetaminophen tends to be my go-to drug, but I was really surprised in seeing these, that, that there's not really um, a big difference in the safety profile of both drugs. And for me, it was sort of the opposite of, we don't give Motrin until six months. And the reasoning for why is sort of never been really well elucidated. Um, it's not recommended past, you know, younger than six months. The thought is this theoretical um, kidney damage fever could like theoretically cause even like increased dehydration, but borne out in studies doesn't seem like it's actually true. And it was interesting to note that this, they talk about how in other countries, um, Motrin's given from like two or, or three months. And I wonder if we will get to a point where we're doing that as well. I think that's sort of the interesting next step here is, is you know, why in the first place are we not getting under six months? And yeah. they also talked about this, uh, this notion that you know, what should be given to kids who are dehydrated because of the risk of, of kidney impairment there. And they do cite two, two RCTs, 27,000 participants who had dehydration and they did not find a high likelihood of kidney impairment. And those they got ibuprofen compared to semen and who were dehydrated too. So perhaps debunking some of the myths that we've had for a long time. And that's one thing that one of the, one of the residents mentioned in, on, the, on the recording is that, you know, to tell one, to tell a family, I'm going to give these medications, but for your two-year-old, you can use this, but for your four-month-old, you can't. Is that more confusing versus just saying, use a Tylenol across the board. It's easier, you know, than having to give two medications. But then, as you mentioned, Shoshana, is that, is that kind of faulty as well? Is that, is that flawed as well to logic of not giving Motrin um, under, under a certain age? And are we doing kids a disservice by saying just give Tylenol because we think it's easier for families um, and that goes into some of the same literature on the like alternating of Motrin and Tylenol, which ha has been studied a lot also. Um, should we be giving both alternating, which hasn't been shown to have increased adverse effects, but can be really confusing to families, potentially helpful, potentially not, but for a family that could get really confusing. So does this change your practice? <laughs> it doesn't change my practice in that I feel still feel really strongly that Motrin is my first line in the over six month olds. It changes my thought about the under six month olds. I still am not ready to do it because I don't think we have really enough evidence and it's not standard of care here, but I anxiously will look out for more evidence about it. Um, and it changes my teaching practice to hear what everyone else is saying and what other people's thoughts are. Did you yeah. read oh, no. I am team Tylenol. I will admit I'm biased though, because I uh, I can't take Motrin, so I don't really understand when people are like, oh, I love this drug so much. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> I'm like missing out. But I do think that a lot of, um, kind of like a lot of the dialogue around ibuprofen um, 
is related to the side effect profile. And I think for me, it definitely will make me think about which drug I'm using in which patient population. Am I really, is there enough evidence to support the, the side effects that I'm thinking of for that particular patient population? So I do think I will probably use ibuprofen more going forward, especially as a first line. I don't know, for whatever reason, we, I just, we always, I always just like titles at the first thing that comes out of my mouth for whatever reason. And there's no like, there's, I will admit there's no like rhyme or reason for why that's the case, but I think using ibuprofen more often is definitely something I'm going to consider for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm totally with you, Divya. I think I'd always, I don't know where it came from, but uh, I think this does, this will make me consider ibuprofen's first line. Often as I'm making pain plans for patients, we'll say like, okay, you know, mild pain, one to three, Tylenol, moderate pain, four to six, ibuprofen, and then something stronger, you know, like an opiate or something for, for, the, for the severe pain. But is that, is that really evidence-based? Probably not, you know, like, oh, let's start with Tylenol first and see if that helps. And the ibuprofen, I don't think the safety profile really backs that, really backs up that, that logic either. So I think for me, it certainly affirms um, that uh, motion could probably be used. I, you're making me think of this. I had a patient when I was a resident. It was a patient on the liver service. I'm never going to forget this because it was one of the most <laughs> painful 24-hour calls I've had. So it, all stories from residency start, by the way. Liver <laughs> <laughs> call, liver transplant patient. Go ahead. It was a liver transplant patient who had some like minor procedure. Um, I think it was anticoagulated, and so there there was the pain plan had been to give you know, liver, quote unquote, liver dosing of, of Tylenol um, for pain um, with second line being opioids. And this poor child must've been like under six months old, but poor, she was screaming and crying all night. And this mom was at her wit's end about it. Finally at like 4 a.m., the attending on call said, just give a dose of ibuprofen. I kid you not, within 15 minutes, that baby was sleeping soundly. <laughs> I felt so bad. I felt like we were withdrawing. Like I was withholding medication that could have really helped her for so many hours. But this makes me think of, this paper makes me think of that incident that I had as a resident. I wonder as hospitalists, do you guys think that your go-to is Tylenol because of the availability in IV form? You know, I think we've only recently started using IV Tylenol more frequently. I would say like in the last year or so. Um, but I don't know why I do agree with Sumi, like when I'm making a pain plan or even if the child has fever, Tylenol is like always the go-to for some reason in mind. It's probably like my own bias. I don't know. I don't know why I do it. And it's probably why a lot of the residents then come to clinic and have Tylenol <laughs> yeah. it's on their mind as their, as their go-to. So thanks a lot, guys. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But I think if you'd ask most of the general pediatricians, we're all, for the most part, team ibuprofen. Yeah, I think part of its frequency as well. I think honestly, part of its that's yeah, even the, more. The dosing frequency is is a big deal. Yeah, well, I will say uh, as you as we close out this this session, this this part of the of the, of the episode that the next one thing that they did not look at, I want to see a head to head, acetaminophen, ibuprofen, and cowbell. Here's what I'm talking about. No, I don't. I don't know what's what the words coming out of your mouth right now. Baseline. <laughs> you haven't seen the cowbell? More cowbell? SNL skit? Oh, you're missing out. It's past mine and Divya's bedtimes. 
I started watching SNL during the pandemic, but I don't watch it the night of. I watch it the next morning. Because yeah, it's so. past our bedtime. Yeah, I'm in bed at 9.30. Guess what? I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. <laughs> One, two, three, four. Do you have a ring light? I just want it. I put the ring light on in here. Is like, it on? It's, it's on. New toy. Tell the ring light makes me look like I have a filter on my face. <laughs> Are you jealous that Debbie and I have ring lights? <laughs> well, to be fair, this is meets ring light. <laughs> There's a light here that's emanating from above. It's very fluorescent. Mine. <laughs> it has like the lights below and like the lights from the window creates creates an interesting image. I decided that the applicants are probably looking at me being like, oh my God, look at that lady. She looks so horrible. Is this what's going to happen to us? So for the good of the program, I bought the ring light. For the program. <laughs> Come here, you'll be glamorous like us. With our ring <laughs> yeah. Come here, you won't look like you only sleep three minutes a night. You know, you can change the different settings on that one, Divya. There's like a... Yeah, I know. There's, there's all sorts of settings. Yeah, mine has three. One. There's like a really bright one. It's really warm. Which one do you guys put the plus button and it makes it brighter? Really dark. <laughs> and this is too harsh, this lighting. <laughs> anyway. I once, I once went on, did a meeting and Marina was on it and I was presenting something and she was like, the ring light does wonders for you. <laughs> I was like, Compared to what? <laughs> no, it's me. When you showed me the ring light when we were testing it out for interviews, I literally was like, he has a filter or he's got makeup on. I don't know which one <laughs> Maybe both. Okay, if you wear a little so makeup. What? Yeah, so what? Maybe a little both. No judgment. Yeah, you do what you gotta do. Hey, we're back. And it's game time. Really excited about this game. I'm excited. I'm excited because I'm I'm playing against another attending, so like all of my competitive nature can really come out in full form. Yeah. <laughs> this is like uh, like the returning champions edition, though, like the Jeopardy tournament of champions. I never. We didn't win that round of Jeopardy, and I almost never win these games. So these games are really hard. Why we did Tony Jeopardy together, and we definitely did not win. <laughs> those residents crushed us they're so much smarter than me they're so much smarter than us agreed myself whoever pays our salaries please don't listen to that <laughs> well i will say that i did i did make these particularly difficult because i feel like you two can handle it no all right i this is uh general fever trivia so i have six six questions and we'll see uh we'll see what you guys know about fever. So first question, this is the most common agent that causes drug fever. So A, anticonvulsants, B, antibiotics, C, heparin, D, minocycline. I'm gonna go with A. Same. Anticonvulsants? 
-hmm. Hangover symptoms are common. They use the drug fever, but antibiotics, ironically, give you more drug fever. I thought it was like antibiotic specific, which is why I didn't, I didn't think that answer. Like certain antibiotics can cause drug fever, but not all of them. Well, not all of them. Same with the negativosis too, though. But yeah. Yeah. We expect more of antibiotics than to give drug fever. But it's hard because usually you're like on day like five and six, and the patient's still fed by, and you're like, oh, maybe it's a ceftriaxone, or maybe it's the negativosis yeah. that they're on that's actually causing their fever. But all right, you have more chances here. Again, these are. These are like, this is like the trivial pursuit, the like brainiac version or whatever it's called, like the 2.0 version. All right, so this type of, this question two, this type of reaction usually manifests in one to three hours after the first dose of antibiotics. It includes fevers, chills, rigors, hypotension, headache, cardia, and may also have skin lesions and anxiety, some flushing, vasodilation. I'll give you bonus points if you can pronounce it correctly. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I will not be able to pronounce it. I don't even think I'll be able to say the words, but if it was <laughs> on paper, I could pick the answer. It's like a hyphenated word. There's maybe an H in there somewhere. <laughs> in one hour, they've actually already left the practice. So it's, it's your problem by then. So I don't have to know this. I want to hear you try, Divya. I don't know if I'm, I think I'm like confusing different things in my I think head. you're on the right track. Why don't you try? It's like. <laughs> <laughs> so it has no video here. I heard like your, your mouth is a contorting, but uh, try it. It's like, I, I don't know. It's like her, 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 I can't, I don't remember what it is. There's an I remember the second word is with a J. Yeah, there's a J in there. Do you know Shoshana? I, I can also picture the word. Something. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna give, it give it us both the points. Give it to you. It's the Jerish Hertzheimer. Yeah. Yes. There's a J. You guys, there's a J in there. There's an H in there. Yes. We right. only know how to take multiple choice tests. So I know. We'll, you were able to see it and make a big. We would have gotten. I was waiting for the different answer choices, Sneed. Oh no! No 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 no! Not for not for all of these. All right. Well, okay. So you guys got that one. You would you would get this on you would get that on a on a multiple choice question, correct? On the boards, I would yeah, get it. On the boards, well, we done. well done. Question three. What does bundling do to an infant's temperature? And the options are, of course, increase, decrease, or no change. I would say no change. It shouldn't change their core temperature. If you're taking if you're taking it rectally. We got it wrong. Sweet space. I know, right? Oh, that's right. That's awesome. You're right. Correct. That's exactly right. So you, so this is, um, this is based on a study from 1994 from our friends uh, Grover and Berkowitz. Berkowitz wrote the textbook, right? In inventory pediatrics. The effects of bundling on infant temperature. And it results in a higher skin temperature up to 1.2 degrees Celsius higher, but no change in rectal temperature. We have to talk about bundling and like all that kind of thing, but really the literature shows that there shouldn't be a change in core temperature like Shoshana mentioned. That's why it's important that parents are taking temperature appropriately rectally in their right. infants. Unlike we do when we screen at the door. <laughs> Question four. This is the animal vector for loss of fever. Wait, say that again. This is the animal vector for loss of fever. 
for Lassa fever. Like a West African yeah. origin. Mm-hmm. A fly, a tick. Sure. Did you? Oh. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no. don't listen to me, Deb. <laughs> it's rats. Oh, I was going to say Oh, rats. Yeah. Oh, gross. All right. I got two more questions here. Which of the following home remedies is not purported to fight fever? Not purported to fight fever. A, basil. B, capsaicin. C, peppermint tea. D, oats. To fight, not fight fever. Which one doesn't fight fever? Right. It feels like capsaicin would yeah, increase like your capsaicin. temperature, right? But I have it no feels like a trick to me. Oats definitely is. I haven't heard of these as any home remedies for fever. Peppermint. I'm going to go with capsaicin. Final answer. Shush. No, I think you're a trickster. I'm not going to do it. He's a trickster. He's a trickster. Like, Let's say basil. <laughs> I will say also, this is like the source for this may not be the most um, evidence-based evidence-based <laughs> the websites that I got this from. So, so basil, capsaicin, and peppermint tea have been purported to fight fever. So the answer is oats, like oatmeal. The reason being capsaicin can help lower your body temperature by signaling to your brain that your body is overheated and causes you to sweat. And then you bring on a cooling effect. Peppermint tea, kind of similar. They say that the menthol uh, gives you such a feeling cooler. Um, and the same thing about sweating and helping you cool down. Oats or oatmeal requires a lot of digestive energy, which is like thermogenesis. And so that actually raises your metabolism and increases your body heat. I don't I don't know, people give their kids oat baths when they have a fever. <laughs> What's that? And yet people give their kids oat baths when they have a fever. That's it true. It's different. It's ingestion it's like digestive properties, maybe it's different. Maybe. Basically, take things that are really hard to like digest, like eat some cardboard. Interesting. And your body will be so tied up in eating and digesting the cardboard that you raise your body temperature metabolism. <laughs> Other things included bananas, oats, red meat, two potatoes. Anyway, <laughs> they're very fib- fibrous. All right, last question, which is a kind of a, it's kind of a gotcha question. I don't know if you listen to like the debate in Iowa, the senators debate, when they asked them what's the price of corn to see like how in touch they were with the, with the common uh, Iowan. So I went to, I went to a pharmacy like a block from this hospital, a community pharmacy, and looked at the price of a four ounce suspension of acetaminophen, Actually, this, these are brand names. These are branded Tylenol and Motrin. What do you think the cost was a block from this hospital? And four ounces, suspension, 100 for five, and bro, uh, Motrin, 160 for five, Tylenol in the red box, four ounces. Well, the price of each of them? They happen to be the same price at this particular pharmacy that I went to. Um, four ounces. I'm going to say $8. I was going to say $7. So the price was $8.59. Wow. 
Wow. I was going to say 875. That was going to be my job. You can get it much cheaper at other pharmacies. Yes, I would believe you. I on that. was rounding up because you went to a community pharmacy. 859. That's expensive. That's so, just goes to show that. Uh, at the same time, it's probably gonna be under four dollars, right? So it's it's not the it's not like it's a, the cheapest thing in the world to get suspension for whatever it's worth. The the tablets were cheaper, so I think there's definitely they're definitely making some money off of uh, off the children's health here. Yeah, but you're both pretty close. You're not out of touch with your patients. <laughs> All right, well there you go, Divya, eked out the win by a dollar. All of that credit because Divya was a 181st resident. I was. I was. She's trying to tell me everything I know. So um, let's give a little credit to Dana, please. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Dana was my actual preceptor, but Shoshana precepted me when she was on both of her maternity leaves. So, well, thank you both for joining, talking about Tylenol and Motrin, ibuprofen, aka semen infant ibuprofen, two very common medications. And the only topic I'm qualified to discuss. Yeah, good talking to the two of you. Thanks, me. Bye. So that's our episode for today. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, I know I always learn a lot from from Divya and Shoshana, and I hope you all did too. Again, please. Uh, continue to download episodes, share with us how things are going, and if, you, if there's certain things you want to hear us talk about on future episodes. Uh, don't forget to follow us on all of our social platforms, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye.